Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. chapel of the year, I am going to bring a message that I've actually wanted to bring uh, for some time, uh, the title of which is How to Complete Your Ministry and Leave Life with No Regrets. Imagine with me for just a moment that you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that you only had a few weeks, maybe a few months to live. You knew it. You could almost pinpoint the date when you would make your exit uh, from this life. What would you do? Who would you try to get in touch with? And what would you say to them? You come to the book of 2 Timothy. Uh, You come to a book that was written by a man that knew that his death was imminent and knew that his time on this earth was short. And so what he did was he, from a prison, wrote a letter to his young son in the ministry, Timothy. And when you come to 2 Timothy chapter 4, you come to the final words in the final letter of this man, Paul. Some have called 2 Timothy his last will and testament. Others are referred to it as his farewell discourse. He knew his time was short, and based upon uh, historical research, we have good reason to believe that he was in a very horrible uh, and inhumane situation. In fact, uh, Chuck Quarles, uh, in his book that will come out soon on the life of Paul, describes Paul's condition in this way. It's a bit lengthy, but it sets the table very well for us This morning, Paul probably spent his last days in the Mamertine prison in Rome. Prison conditions in this day were appalling by modern standards and horrifying even to the ancients. After arrest, prisoners normally suffered an inquisitorial flogging, a bloody torture that attempted to pull a confession or at least an honest testimony from the accused. Due to Paul's Roman citizenship, he had been spared this flogging when arrested by Lysias in Jerusalem. However, the treatment of Christians in Rome after the great fire was so brutal and unjust that it is doubtful that Paul's citizenship was of much benefit to him at this point. The prisoner's clothing was stripped away during the flogging and was not generally replaced. The ill-clothed and sometimes naked prisoners would shiver in the cold, damp conditions of the prisons. This likely explains Paul's plea for Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.13 to bring his cloak before winter. The bleeding lacerations left on the prisoner's back, chest, and stomach were not cleansed or bandaged. After the flogging, the half-conscious prisoner would be dragged to a crowded cell, thrown to the floor, and shackled by his wrists and ankles. The unsanitary condition of the cells posed a real threat for fatal infection of the open wounds. 
Prisoners had no access to bathing facilities or barbers. After months in prison, the shaggy, dirty prisoners looked and smelled more like animals than human beings. They were marched to latrines only at designated times. This forced prisoners to use their cells as latrines. Diseased flesh, filthy bodies in crowded conditions, and human waste created foul odors that were unbearable. In those rare instances in which prisoners uh, were provided food, the rations were meager and the food was often stale or spoiled. Even water was distributed in sparse amounts and prisoners struggled with both hunger and thirst. Most prisoners depended on family or friends to bring them food daily. Sadly, as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 4:11, only Luke was there to attend to his needs. Despite the darkness, most prisoners found it very difficult to sleep. Nauseating odors, gnawing hunger, hard cobblestone floors, the cough, screams, and incoherent babbling of other prisoners in the cell or down the hall and shackled that bit into the prisoner's flesh all combined to make anything but brief sleep impossible. Sleep-deprived, tortured, and hungry prisoners often considered death their only means of escape and pled for death to come. But Roman law forbade the guards to assist in suicides and threatened severe punishment if they ignored the law. In his dark, damp, crowded, and filthy cell, Paul composed his final letter to Timothy. His wrist may have been shackled to the prison wall, so he may have dictated the letter to Luke, as implied in chapter 4, verse 11. So this is the context in which Paul, who knows he will soon die, writes this final letter to his young child, as he calls him in chapter 1 and verse 2, his young child, his young son in the faith, Timothy. And in these last 17 verses of 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul just kind of lays bare his soul. He kind of exposes his heart in a way that only perhaps is approached in 2 Corinthians where he talks about his great love and concern and his prayers for the church. And as he shares with Timothy in the process, he gives us, I think, a wonderful treasure. Because in these verses, Paul gives us wisdom as to how it is that you can complete your ministry and how it is that you and I can leave this life with no regrets. Most of you in here this morning are very young in comparison to some of the rest of us. So let me just say this to you, and then we're going to move into the text. It's one thing to start well, but it is a completely different thing to finish well. How is it that you and I can finish well this life and the ministry that the Lord has given us three overarching ideas from these verses of Scripture. Number one, remember there is a life worth living and a death worth having. That's chapter 4, verses 6, 7, and 8. There is a life worth living and a death worth having. Listen to the word of the Lord, Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that 
day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. If you go back into chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4, you get the context of what Paul is saying here. In chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, he has challenged us to follow his example. Then in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he challenges us to continue in the gospel of our salvation. Then in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he challenges us to trust the Scriptures. And then building on the logic of that argument, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, he challenges us to preach the Word. So follow his example, continue in the gospel, trust the Scriptures, preach the Word. These indeed are keys to faithful and effective ministry. Here then is a life worth living, giving one the ability to face death as Paul now faces death with absolutely no regrets. However, there are certain realities we must reckon with. And so in verse 6, Paul is going to look to his present situation. In verse 7, he is going to look to the past. And then in verse 8, he is going to look to the future. And in each of these instances, he gives us insight into understanding how it is that we can live a life that is worthy of the gospel and also face a death worth having. He tells us, first of all, in verse 6, it will be costly. I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. Paul knows his death is imminent. Paul knows that the life he has lived for Christ is going to play into his imminent exit from this world. And so using the imagery first of a sacrifice, and then secondly, probably using the imagery of sailing, though the word as we're going to see in a moment can mean a number of different things in terms of uh, its context, Paul wants us to understand that his life is about to come to an end. And so using the imagery of a sacrifice... Uh, Tony Morita, in his very fine commentary, Christ-centered exposition, uh, having written 2 Timothy, says it like this. The image of sacrifice Paul uses is drawn from the Old Testament sacrificial system. Exodus 29, Leviticus 23, Numbers 15 and 28. During the ritual of sacrifice, a lamb, uh, sacrificing a lamb, wine was poured out at the base of the altar. Perhaps Paul is using this image then to refer to the type of death he expected. Because he was a Roman citizen, he could not be crucified, and so he probably anticipated being beheaded, in which case his blood was splashed like wine on the ground. This pouring out of his life would be an offering of worship to Jesus. Paul's entire life as a believer was about sacrificial service, And then Tony raises a very good question. When your life is over, will people be able to say he poured out his life for Christ? Yes, it will be a costly adventure. Paul says, the time of my departure has come. So he moves from the imagery of a sacrifice to the imagery of perhaps sailing, although this word can mean to set sail. It even has the idea of taking down a tent and breaking camp. Sometimes it's even used in the context of setting a prisoner free and even that of unyoking an ox. And so Paul, I guess, could say, I'm about to set sail from this life. 
I'm about to fold this tent of my frail and beaten and broken body that has suffered so often for Christ. By the way, something Christ promised that Paul would indeed suffer in Acts chapter 9 and verse 16. But Paul is not griping, Paul is not whining, but Paul is celebrating the fact that he is about to head to his heavenly home. It was costly, but it was worth it. Secondly, verse 7, not only will it be costly, it will be tough. Paul says, using three very picturesque images here, I fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. He talked about a sacrifice and a ship sailing in verse 6. And now in verse 7, he talks about a fight, a race, and a stewardship. And the idea of each of those words is that there was a time in his life when he began to fight. There was a time in his life when he began to run the race. There was a time in his life when the faith was entrusted to him. And he has been faithful to those charges. He calls us to fight a good Now, what kind of fight is he calling us to? You know, some people just like to fight. Some people just like to fight. In fact, it's often said some people will fight at the drop of a hat, and they are more than happy to drop the hat. Uh, I understand there are people like that. I've encountered people like that. Uh, But no, Paul has a particular thing that you and I are to fight for. You say, what is it? Well, he tells us back in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12, fight what? The good fight of faith. And then he tells us in 2 Timothy 3.15 what is to be the object of that faith. It is faith in Christ Jesus which is able to make you wise for salvation. So, you want to fight? Fine. Fight for the gospel. Fight for the truth of salvation. Fight for that which we have in Christ. Don't quit. Don't get discouraged. Stay true to the gospel. Paul says, secondly, he has finished the race. The fight is almost over. The race is almost done. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 4, when he preached to the Ephesian elders at Miletus, he told them that his goal was to finish his course and the ministry he received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul would tell us that the race is long. Paul would tell us that the race is hard. Uh, Something like a modern-day marathon, it is 26 miles, 385 yards. It is not a sprinter's race. It's not even an intermediate-distance race. It is a long-distance race, and Paul has run his race well, and now he sees the finish line. We're to fight the good fight. We're to finish the race. But thirdly, we're to keep the faith. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20 and 21, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you and avoid the irreverent babbling and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. And so can we just cut to the chase for a moment and bottom line everything? Ministry is tough. Ministry is tough. Ministry is hard. Ministry is difficult. In ministry, there's stress. In ministry, there is strain. In ministry, there is discomfort and difficulties. Again, to say it in a Danny Aiken way, ministry is not for wimps. And ministry is not for crybabies. 
If you are a crybaby, then get right with God or get out of the ministry. If you are a wimp, man up or girl up or get out of the ministry. And in that context, just one additional point of application. Many times people say, well, you know, it's just not fair to be in the ministry. People hold us to a higher expectation. It's almost like we live in a glass house. You do live in a glass house. And people are going to hold you to a higher standard. And again, if that is just simply unbearable for you, then go do something else. Ministry is for those who are going to fight the good fight, who are going to run the full distance of a long race, who are going to keep the faith. So it's costly, it's tough, but thirdly, it is also one that will be rewarded. Look at verse 8. Henceforth, as a result of the fact I fought the good fight, as a result of the fact I finished the race, as a result of the fact that I have kept the faith, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, and if you put it in context of chapter 4 and verse 1, it has to be, I think, the Lord Jesus, the Lord will award to me on that day, what day, Paul? The day of His appearing. And not only to me, but to all who have loved His appearing. So again, using uh, the athletic imagery, I really like that about Paul, by the way. He says, the Lord has laid up for me a crown, the Stephanos, the the victor's crown, the the crown of reward for loyal and faithful service. Now, this crown is of infinite, not finite value. It is of eternal, not temporal, temporal worth. And it is for all who look forward and long to the day of His coming, who love and long to see that day come to pass. I again agree with our colleague Andreas Kostenberger, who says of the crown of righteousness, quote, the reward that consists in righteousness is what Paul means. Paul will finally have attained the full righteousness that positionally was his already in Christ. That's excellent theology, by the way. On that day, believers' glorification will be complete. And Paul knew that as a result of his faithful fight, of his faithful running, of his faithful stewardship. He had this crown that consisted in the fulfillment of his righteousness as a reward. There is, brothers and sisters, a life worth living, and there is a death worth having, as Paul said to us in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Number two, remember it's important to always keep things in proper perspective. Remember, it is important to always keep things in proper perspective. This is verses 9 through 15 and also 19 through 21. I often say to folks that a a real friend is someone that you can trust guarding your back in the foxhole. They'll not only take a bullet for you, they'll kill somebody for you. And they won't shoot you in the back of the head either on purpose or by accident. And I will tell you, the longer you live, the more you'll realize how very, very, very short that list really is. I think Paul would agree with me. Now, before we walk through these verses, again, a very practical point of application. Relationships are so important in life and ministry. 
There is no place for a lone ranger in Christian ministry. You try to go at it alone and you will fail. Remember, even the lone ranger had Tonto. And so he had someone that was alongside of him, helping him and encouraging him. But here's what you need to understand. These relationships of life are going to take many different avenues. The fact of the matter is, some people will treat you really good and others really bad. Some people will bring joy to your heart and other people will break your heart. And so in these verses, Paul basically lists for us three different categories of people that we can expect to deal with and encounter in our ministry. He's going to tell us first that some people will bless us. Secondly, that some people will disappoint us. And thirdly, some people will oppose us. Some people are going to bless you. Some people are going to disappoint you, and some people will oppose you. Let's start with the positive. Some people will bless you. Verse 9, he writes to Timothy, Do your best, you can imply Timothy, to come to me soon. Now, he begins with Timothy, but he doesn't stop there. There's a whole list of people that he's going to speak about, 18 altogether, and the vast majority of them are are positive. So he speaks of Timothy here in verse 9. Crescens and Titus in verse 10, Luke and Mark in verse 11, Tychicus in verse 12, Carpus, what a name, in verse 13, and a host of folks in verses 19 through 21. Now, I could spend a long time about each of them, but here's the Reader's Digest summary of them. Timothy, of course, was his spiritual child in the ministry. Twice in this passage, verse 9 and verse 21, he asked him to come to him and to come soon, verse 9, come before winter, verse 21. Crescent, we know nothing. Uh, He was just a simple, faithful servant of the Savior. Titus, one of my favorites. Titus was Paul's spiritual hitman. He was Paul's spiritual hitman. You talk about the antithesis of a wimp, it was Titus. Things are messed up at Corinth, send Titus. Things are not going well at Crete, send Titus. And so Titus was the kind of guy that could go in, bust up the carnal, carnal cartel, and put things right. And so Titus was his spiritual hitman. Luke, his good friend... His personal physician, I think he probably was the amanuensis of this letter and the only one who is with Paul at this particular moment. Mark, that's a happy story, isn't it? Mark went on the first uh, missionary journey, but on the first missionary journey, he was a wimp. And so he uh, wimped out and went back home. Second missionary journey comes along. Barnabas, Mr. Encouragement, says, hey, we ought to give John Mark another chance. And Paul says, not in my lifetime. And it says that the vision was so Uh, so harsh between the two of them that they split and went in different directions. But if I have to take a vote on who had the right perspective on John Mark on this one, the Apostle Paul loses because now we learn that Paul believes he is valuable and helpful. He says of John Mark, bring him with you. Verse 11, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Now, like what Warren Wiersbe said, Paul now knowingly admitted that John Mark was a valuable worker and he wanted Mark with him in Rome. How good it is to know that one failure in Christian service need not make one's whole life a failure. What a good word. Tychicus. 
Believer from the province of Asia, according to Acts 20, verse 4. Accomplished Paul uh, on a number of missionary journeys, was with Paul during his first imprisonment. Carpus, data is limited on him. What we do know is he had Paul's cloak and books. Again, I like what Marita said. I would consider this guy a righteous dude if he watched over my books and returned them safely. That is a word for seminary students who get to borrow books because books just have this inability to find their way back home unless you carry them back to their rightful owner. A word to the wise should be sufficient. You drop down to verse 19, Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila, a wonderful husband and wife team that had worked with Paul and now were serving in Ephesus. Onesiphorus, chapter 4, verse 19, uh, his household is mentioned in 1, 16 through 18, and they were an incredible blessing to Paul. Erastus, verse 20, might be a treasure at Corinth, and he might be the same man who ministered with Timothy in Macedonia in Acts chapter 19. Trophimus, also uh, from Ephesus, a friend of Tychicus. Uh, the man who was present when Paul incited a riot in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21, verse 28 and 29. He'd been serving in Miletus, but he's ill. And, of course, the million-dollar question has always been, well, why didn't Paul heal him? And evidently, Paul, who had the gift of healing, could not heal indiscriminately. If it is not the Lord's will for you to be healed, you will not be healed. And then at the end, in verse 21, there's just a bunch of names, all unknown to us, but not unknown to the Lord. And what we do know is they all were a tremendous blessing to Paul. You're going to have people in your life and in your ministry that when you see them coming, it brightens your day. And when you have your back against the wall, they'll be right there beside you. They will be in that foxhole guarding your back. They will take a bullet for you. They will shoot somebody for you. They love you and are that faithful to you. Make sure you treasure those relationships. However, there's a second category of people, and that is those who will disappoint you. Back to chapter 4 and verse 10. Demas in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. There are few sadder names in the Bible than Demas. Paul says, Demas has deserted me. The word means to utterly or completely abandon. He went to Thessalonica. Why? He tells us. Because he's in love with this present world. Now, here's what makes this so tragic. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 14, and in Philemon 24, it's very clear that at one time in his life, Demas was a faithful, productive co-worker for the gospel, but not anymore. Instead of loving our Lord's appearing, verse 8, you cannot help but see the contrast, can you? He loves this present world system and its values, its priorities, its Allurements. You want commentary? Go to Romans 12, verse 2. Go to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Using that latter passage, what was it that Demas loved? He loved the lust of fleshly enticements. He loved eye candy. And he loved stuff. And all that had captured his heart and drawn him away from the Lord Jesus. Like Judas. He hung around for a while. But he did 
not last. Now, it's anecdotal. I've actually never seen a survey that, that bears it out, but I am told over and over and over and over that 10 years out from graduation, 50% of all who graduate from seminary will no longer be in ministry. 50%. Now, I have to believe it's better for us who actually believe the Bible, believe the gospel, who really do think heaven and hell are real and that what we do really does matter. And yet I can share with you this morning that when I left the church that I grew up in, in Forest Park, Georgia, there were about six of us that left to go to college and then on to seminary to be in ministry. And today, of the six, two of us are still in the ministry. And so the fact of the matter is there are going to be people who will desert you just like Judas deserted Jesus and Demas deserted Paul. If they left them, there'll be people that will leave us and disappoint us too. Then thirdly, there are some who will oppose you. In verse 14 and 15, Paul speaks of a guy named Alexander. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to to his deeds. But, there's a word for you, Timothy, beware of him yourself. Why? Because not only did he uh, do us much harm, he strongly opposed our message. Now, this may be the same man that he spoke of in chapter 1 and verse 20 with a friend named Hymenaeus, whom Paul says, I've handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. But here Paul speaks of this man again saying that he did great harm, verse 14. He strongly opposed our message, verse 15. He tells Timothy he's still at it, so you beware of him as well. But Paul, picking up on what he says in Romans 12 and verse 19, again another good principle for you and me, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. It's not your job nor mine to repay people for their sins against us. When people wrongly oppose you, when people wrongly malign you, when people misrepresent you and try to undercut and try to destroy your ministry, you don't need to take the initiative to pay them back. You turn them over to the Lord. John Piper is right when he says the gospel will have enemies, and so he makes it in this way. Ministry is relationally hard, not only because of loneliness and abandonment from inside, but personal and hostile opposition from the outside. Every moment of unexpected silence from a friend, every verbal blow from an enemy wounds the spirit. Ministry is relationally hard, and it is. But make sure you keep things in proper perspective. There'll be people that will oppose you. There'll be people that will disappoint you. And there will be people that will bless you. So, remember there's a life worth living and a death worth having. Secondly, remember it's important to always keep things in proper perspective. And then finally, remember if everyone else forsakes you, the Lord won't. If everyone else forsakes you, the Lord won't. Verse 16 may be one of the most sad and tragic verses in all the Bible. Paul writes, At my first defense, 
No one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. No one came to stand beside me, all deserted me. You know, that's amazing, isn't it? Paul's at the end of his life. In my judgment, the greatest theologian and the greatest missionary who ever lived. I would expect there to be a big banquet. I would expect there to be a a, a big party, a, a big celebration. Or if not that, at least at the end of his life, he'll be surrounded by his friends and his family who are so grateful for him and who love him, something I think all of us would pray and do pray will be true if, if we reach, when we reach the end. But that's not the case with him. He's by himself. Only Luke is with me. And in fact, when he went before his preliminary trial, not one single person was there to speak on his behalf. But even if everyone else forsakes you, The Lord won't, very quickly, three observations about His not forsaking us. Number one, we do have His presence to strengthen us. Verse 16, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me, and like the Lord Jesus, and like uh, Stephen, the first martyr, He says there of them, may it not be charged against them. But then verse 17, but the Lord stood by me, And the Lord strengthened me. And so Paul says, even though everyone else forsook me, everyone else was gone, the Lord was there to strengthen me. He did not forsake me, but he was right there beside me. A number of folks have noted that as you walk through these verses, Paul sounds like he's almost reflecting upon Psalm 22, the crucifixion psalm, which, of course, has its very dire, negative painful beginning but it's very hopeful and positive ending and so perhaps that's exactly what he was doing and as a result of that he draws strength from the lord's passion seeing in many ways his own life as a living out again of the passion of our savior so as god was with christ during his passion paul can say the lord was with me during my trial i've often thought playfully i wonder if paul was whispering along the way What a friend we have in Jesus. Secondly, we have His purpose to sustain us. Look again at verse 17. The Lord stood by me and He strengthened me. Well, Paul, why did He stand by you and why did He strengthen you? So that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the nations might hear it. Again, I can't say it better than than John Piper, I quote, The Lord did not stand by Paul merely for the sake of his own peace or merely for the church in Rome. The Lord stood by him and strengthened him that all the nations, panta, ta, ethne, might hear. Perhaps the tribunal was full of people from all over the Roman Empire when Paul gave his defense. Or perhaps Paul preached that last time in a way that would challenge some younger men and women to take the gospel to all the unreached peoples. Whatever the case, Paul knew that the reason the Lord was standing by him was to give him strength and zeal and vision for world evangelization. The Lord stood by me and gave me strength to proclaim the message fully that all the nations might hear it. And then he says, The Lord 
stands by us with His precious friendship to strengthen us for world evangelization. His friendship is given to forgive our sins and heal our wounds and make us whole people. That is true. But the reason He stands by us is to give us forgiveness and healing and wholeness is that we might multiply our joy in reaching all the peoples of the earth. And then finally, we have His promise to save us. I purposefully have divided my message at an odd place, putting the end of verse 17 with the 18th verse. You say, why? Because it helps us understand a very important theological principle. Paul says at the end of verse 17, I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And again, Chuck Quarles argues that perhaps Paul had been thrown into uh, the lion's den or thrown into the arena uh, as a cruel form of entertainment in that day, or maybe it was because he was a Roman citizen, they didn't throw him in. And so as a result of that, he could say, I was rescued from the lion's mouth. But then he says in verse 18, and... The Lord will rescue me. But look at how he talks about the Lord's final rescue. He will rescue me from every evil deed. And in this rescue, what will he do? He will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Verse 18's rescue is much different than verse 17's rescue, isn't it? One is temporal, but the other is eternal. One is only for a moment, but the other is for all time. And as a result of that, Paul simply throws up his hands and in worship says to him, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Like the wonderful missionary William Borden, who was heir to the Borden dynasty, he walked away from it all. At the age of 25, made his way to Egypt on the way to the mission field of China, only to die suddenly in Egypt, never even making it to the mission field. And after he had died, his Bible was taken, and they opened it up and found in the Bible these words, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Say no to self. And yes to Jesus every single time. And if you do, you indeed will complete your ministry and you will leave this life with no regrets. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these words at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4. I hurt for Paul who had only Luke with him and was probably freezing to death knew that his time was short, which is why he told Timothy, please come soon, please come before winter, bring my cloak. I need just some very basic essentials. And Lord, it's amazing to realize that probably just a short time later he was taken out uh, to the Ossian Way and beheaded, dying alone like our Savior, losing his head like John the Baptist. But Lord, what a ministry he had. What a life he lived. And so Lord, for me this day and for all these that I love so dearly, may you give us that kind of life. May you give us that kind of ministry 
And yes, Lord, if it is your will, may you even give us that kind of death. All for your glory, King Jesus, we ask and pray. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.